Welcome to another episode of the Clay County Beacon Podcast. Today, I am very happy to have with me uh, Luis Miguel, who is running for Senate, specifically Marco Rubio's Senate seat. Um, Luis and I are going to get into a little bit of why he's running and and who he is. And I just want to say first, Luis, thanks for coming on the show, man. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a privilege and an honor to be here with you. Thanks, man. Um, So tell us, you know, uh, people in Clay County, I would imagine, are not super familiar with you, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just part and parcel of uh, starting a congressional run or a Senate run. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Luis Miguel, and why is, Why are you running for uh, Senate? Well, thank you. You know, I am a husband, I'm a father, an American patriot, a writer and journalist uh, professionally. Right now, I'm a full-time contributor to the New American Magazine. Uh, which is a non-establishment right-of-center publication that exposes the deep state, exposes communism, and many other important issues that are facing America nowadays. And I've worked, written for other outlets in the past. Uh, previous to that, I uh, used to work in the sphere of political consulting over majority strategies, specifically in Jacksonville, developing campaign advertising for firms like, I mean, for clients like uh, Senator Ted Cruz, Marsh Blackburn, Kim Clayson, who ran for for Congress, and other people. And during all this time, uh, as I've been uh, working through my writing and through activism, serving also as an official in the Republican Party for a little while, I was a district chair, I was elected, I was communications director for the St. John's Republican Party. And just witnessing everything that's been happening in our country, the advances of uh, big government, of communism, and the assault on our rights and liberties, made me realize just how deep the swamp goes and just how much um, just how much the people who we believed were on our side, who claimed to be constitutionalists, people in the Republican Party, are really all one and the same with the forces that we've been, fight- we've been fighting, controlled opposition. And it's high, it's high time for just real Americans, patriots who want to see their country preserve this republic safe, get involved directly especially over the course of last year with many of the things that happened, uh, both locally here in St. John's, with a lot of uh, violent Marxist forces coming into town on a national level with the entire COVID uh, draconian response. And of course, the theft of the election, uh, just all of those things contributed to my decision to get involved, seeing that people like Marco Rubio were just part of the, part of the swamp, led to the decision to get involved as a real American to try to make a difference in as much as possible. Yeah, that's interesting stuff, man. So, are you do you are you based out of St. John's County? Is that where you uh, live? I guess uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah okay. I live in St. Augustine, St. Augustine, nation's oldest city. Okay, cool. I love St. Augustine. My wife and I go there all the time. Um, yeah, it's been wild. I, I've been uh, keeping a close eye on on you know the the protests and things that are going on down there. Uh, it's pretty pretty crazy stuff, man. Uh, you know, with the the college that's right there in downtown St. Augustine, it's I'm sure it's it's filled with with folks who lean politically left, uh, which makes it you know a little more like <laughs> I'm sitting here in Middleburg, uh, you know, in Clay County, and and it is you know about as red as you can get. There might be a handful of folks who who aren't uh, you know leaning right or or right of center, but you know we don't really. You know, I have no concerns that like a Black Lives Matter protest is going to break out in Middleburg, where I'm sure it's a little more of a uh, a worry down there in St. John's County. Um, I guess what's your what's your biggest uh, complaint about Marco Rubio? Because obviously, if you thought Marco Rubio was doing a good job, you wouldn't be running. I would assume is that 
an accurate assessment? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an accurate assessment. You know, like many people, I voted for Marco Rubio originally back when he first ran and when he ran for re-election. Uh, the second time, you know, with a bit of apprehension, but I think, um, well, in, in the general, at least, of course. Um, and back in 2010, when he first ran, he convinced a lot of people that he was the true Tea Party constitutionalist patriot. But lo and behold, almost immediately, as soon as he got in, he showed that he was nothing more than an asset for the deep state and for the establishment. And of course, one of the biggest, one of the biggest uh, complaints that a lot of us have had for many years now has just been his siding with the establishment on the issue of migration. And of course, he was famously a member of the Gang of Eight, pushing for amnesty. And I think most people recognize, especially increasingly nowadays, just how important and crucial the immigration issue is of all the ramifications it has for our country, economically, national security-wise, demographically, and um, politically, as far as the political makeup of this country. It just is, has so many far-reaching consequences. And so, you know, people who show themselves to be on the side of mass migration of un or being unwilling to control as Marco Rubio has done, just frankly, are acting against the long-term interests of this country. And so his failure on the migration issue, you might even term it a betrayal, uh, really, frankly, was uh, a moment in which he showed which side he's really on, and it wasn't the people's side by any stretch. And of course, you can go to more recent things. Uh, you can go to the election, for example, and right now, one of the biggest gripes against the, the mainstream of the party from the base is just this refusal to, uh, for so long, there's this failure to secure elections. And we saw the consequences in 2020 of election fraud and how it's able to overturn the people's will in the election. And Marco Rubio was among many, he wasn't the only one, he was among many of these supposed Republicans who didn't dare to stand against the fraud when he had the opportunity to object to the fraudulent votes in the states that were brought up. And then finally, you know, if we want to go three for three, there's the Second Amendment. You know, anybody who's a constitutionalist, the Second Amendment has become practically dogma in the Republican Party with good reason. It's as fundamental for securing our other constitutional rights and liberties against a government that seeks to become autocratic. And if Marco Rubio just absurdly came out, of course, as recently supporting uh, national red flag law legislation, they would just absolutely curtail Americans' rights to keep and bear arms all throughout the country. And so on those bases, Marco Rubio has shown himself to be not the constitutional limited government patriot he feigned to be when he ran for office to get our votes, but just another big government liberal in Republicans' clothing. Yeah, do you think, that's such a fascinating topic to me, um, do you think he really was what he said he was at first? And I, and this is all obviously opinion, but but this is bigger than also Marco Rubio. My what I have always wondered is, do people go into Congress genuinely believing the things that they say, especially you know folks that are coming from the sort of the right of the political aisle, right side of the political aisle? Do they go in actually believing what they 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 said they were going to do and and believing what they said they were about, and then they just get ground up by the political machine that is Washington, D.C.? Or, you know, do they, are they just playing playing a game and saying things they think will get them elected so they can get in and do whatever they wanted to do originally? Like, I, that, that's always a thing that I've wondered. Sure. You know, that's a valid question. And, uh, you know, in my judgment, in my speculation, I guess to put it bluntly, but it's based on what I observe and what I've studied, 
throughout history, I think that if you truly believe in what you say you believe, then you'll stick by it. I mean, we've, we've seen some people out there historically who held to their guns, no matter what kinds of opposition they had, if they were true to their principles, people like in the past, you could point to folks like Robert Taft, um, you know, and um, the great Barry Goldwater, uh, Larry McDonald, famous congressman. So a lot of these people, no matter what kinds of hell they got for the positions they were panned as being extremists or radicals, fringe, whatever, they held true. So I think that most people, this is my judgment, most of these people who you see flip-flop in this way really never were firm in what they were saying. They were simply opportunists saying what they needed to to get elected. And I know, especially reading, as I've read about the lives of many famous politicians, people like... Um, uh, Sorry, our president <laughs> after Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, in a famous biographies by Robert Caro. You can read his uh, books like The Path of Power and others. And you can see how he, from the very beginning, was a guy who didn't have any concrete political beliefs except pursuing political power. And he very, he very famously or very early decided that he would say whatever he needed to say to get on that path. And I think that's the case with most of these politicians. And that's why people have to be very, very careful, very scrutinous with career politicians. And it gives someone like Marco Rubio, who spent the vast majority of his adult life going from uh, one position to another. And of course, he became very skilled in articulating what he believed would get him elected to the next post. Right. Um, and that's something, you know, just to kind of speak to myself a little bit, it differentiates me. I'm not a career politician, haven't run for office before, but what I am is I've been an activist at the grassroots level, and I've been a writer for many years. And so the things that I've been, that I'm advocating for right now as an office seeker, as a candidate, are the things that I've been writing extensively about and exposing as a journalist and advocating as an advocate for years. Anybody can go back and see my record that I didn't just wake up one morning when election season came along and began speaking about these things, but I've been advocating for them for many years now. Right. And in many cases, earning flack for it from the left. Yeah. How do you think that plays in? Here's a, another thing, you know, that I always wonder, like we, we seem to be developing a culture, especially when it comes to politics, where uh, people are, are very much harangued and, and, and uh, harassed almost if they end up changing their mind. So what's the difference, you know, in your mind, what's the difference between somebody who had an opinion at one point and then maybe gained new facts or new understanding and then changed their mind versus somebody like maybe Marco Rubio, who is who is a, I would label as an opportunist, right? He, what he says and who he talks to and how he talks about things, um, he is saying what he needs to say to get to whatever opportunities he wants to take advantage of. Um, you know, so is there is there room in your mind, like if you were to learn new facts about uh, like immigration, like if you go down to the border and you see that there are things that you had no idea were happening, would you, would you come out and say, Hey guys, initially I was saying this, but now I found out X, Y, and Z. And I have sort of changed my mind on maybe what the best course of action is. Like what, how, I don't know. What are your thoughts on someone changing their mind after getting new information? I guess is my very long winded question. <laughs> no, you're good. And you know, you know, absolutely. There is always room for learning more in life and I'm sure there are moments, legitimate moments, where you come across new information and it changes naturally the decision-making that you do. Right. Uh, I think, you know, in, in one sense, it, there's, um, there's some things that are between you and God and, and your own conscience, you know, whether that was a legitimate change or whether it is because 
there was some other ulterior motive. And I think a lot of times you can look at the candidates themselves. Um, you know, in Marco Rubio's case, we're almost, almost uh, immediately getting in there and he starts acting in a way contrary to what the base believed that he stood for. And, uh, you know, also, what other interests are there? Is a candidate, if you look closely enough, is he getting funding from some PAC that has a vested interest in that new change of direction? Is he getting a, a, a cushy book deal from some publisher, right. you know? Um, and is election season coming up? Marco Rubio, for example, always curiously enough, and this isn't, um, this isn't singular to him, using his example, though, election season coming up, is coming up, so all of a sudden, he's this great right-wing patriot, and all of a sudden, he's saying all the right things on immigration and communism and this issue, that issue, conveniently when you're about a year out from the election. You know, it's a telltale sign of just another opportunist politician. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and again, you know, I agree with you. It's also not – this is not necessarily just a Marco Rubio problem. But, um, you know, they are uh, – you have to follow the money, right? It, it's very It's very odd to me that, you know – People go in and they spend, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get a job that only pays, you know, what is it, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year for a senator or whatever it is. It might be a little more than that, but it pays a lot less than the money that is spent, um, you know, to get into those offices. But, you know, these people they come out of Congress and they end up being millionaires, like the vast majority of them, the overwhelming majority. Their net worth skyrockets into the millions when they get done with their uh, their congressional careers. Um, you know, so there, there's something's rotten at the heart of, um, you know, Congress uh, and, and the federal government in general. And I think that's what I hear you saying when you talk about the swamp. People talk about that all the time. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right term, but I, I would say the core is rotten, right? And it's bearing rotten fruit. And I think we can see that with Marco Rubio and other folks. So if Luis Miguel gets elected to Marco Rubio's, Marco Rubio's Senate seat, how do you keep from getting ground up by the machine and, and getting infected with the corruption that's already there? Like, what's your plan to combat that? Sure. I mean, one thing is just remembering who you are. I think ultimately everybody has a choice. Do you listen to your conscience? Do you listen to the other voices? Do you want to lead you away to act against everything you hold on to. So one thing, you know, just staying true to what I believe in, uh, keeping contact also with the people. You know, I think one important thing that's so often neglected by lawmakers who get in there is they, um, they forsake the people who helped them to get elected in the first place. And immediately as soon as they get in, they start surrounding themselves. And in this case, it may, just be, it may be uh, a matter of naivete or ingenuousness, but they start surrounding themselves with people who they believe to be experts, who they think can help them to get the job done effectively. But the problem is that these people that they're hiring are part of the swamp. They're part of the Washington political elite class who have interests, of course, vested interests. And so naturally, as soon as these people are on their, are on the payroll of these uh, office holders, they start using these positions to undermine the office holders' campaign platform in order to and push stuff that uh, that lobbyists or others want to get through, and uh, slowly choking out any remnant of the candidate, until all you have left is this uh, sad hollow shell of what he once was. So I think surrounding yourself is is key, and that includes forming the right connections right now uh, on a campaign trail with people who are knowledgeable, with people who you know have the right values, uh, the pro-America, pro-freedom values that I have. 
Um, and then also, yeah, I also had it also is a matter of building up a strong grassroots infrastructure that continues even after you're in office. I mean, the reason that the powers that be, if you want to call it that, uh, have, have the power that they do is because they have money, one, but then they know how to leverage that money into creating uh, political power, putting people onto the street, putting people out to the ballot boxes, to the polling places. And so I think right now it's so important for people who truly are constitutionalists, who consider themselves to be patriots, to form connections and form a strong grassroots infrastructure that can offset the power of that money. And uh, for example, just to kind of, uh, give an idea of what I'm talking about, there's some great organizations out there uh, that I've been working with and I want to continue to work with. For example, <clears throat> uh, the Republican Liberty Caucus is one of the biggest out there, and you might have heard of it. And they are a wonderful organization. And what they're doing is, in essence, being the conscience of the Republican Party by being a party within the party, doing the things that the GOP can't or won't, for example, uh, supporting actual constitutionalists in primaries, uh, getting involved in activism, getting involved in legislation, uh, get putting out action alerts. Uh, so in, in essence, kind of trying to purge the GOP of the establishment go big government wing to replace it with a limited government constitutionalist wing. Uh, and so I think creating, you know, using your influence in as much as you have it, you know, to help grow organizations like that, to have your same goal um, and your same vision uh, helps to collectively create a strong movement. Because at the end of the day, it isn't just about any one politician, any one race. It's about creating a movement. It's about creating a momentum that can collectively uh, work together to make true, long-lasting political change. Yeah, the Republican Liberty Caucus uh, in Clay County, I'm a member, um, and that's actually where I heard about you. Um, that, that's where I heard you were running and, and that you were going, uh, you know, for Marco Rubio's seat. Um, my big sticking point with Rubio is the Second Amendment stuff. The other stuff is bad, too. Like, don't get me wrong. But, like, for me, when I I, I sort of was, like, done with him when I, when I heard he and Rick Scott were back in that national uh, red flag law. I was like, ah, oh, yep, that, that, that guy needs to... Uh, get out of there. Um, let's play, you know, uh, a little bit of uh, a what if, I guess. Um, so let's say you get, uh, if you get elected to Marco Rubio's Senate seat, what are your top three priorities? What are like the, the three main issues that, that you want to pursue and, 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 you know, work on while you're in the Senate? Sure, absolutely. And I guess we could kind of use that to distinguish from Rubio. I know we brought up immigration already. And to to kind of tackle that a little bit, because even though, I mean, there are many important issues, but the one with migration or immigration is that the effects truly are long term. And depending on how you, depending on how you ultimately decide that on a national policy level, unchangeable. Um, so, you know, amnesty, we have to make sure that we fight off any any mass amnesty or any complete or total amnesty. You know, the figures, the figure that's been t tossed around for years now has been 11 million, but other entities like the Center for Immigration Studies say it's probably, by this point, much more than that, at least doubled that or more of legal aliens in that country. And so the country simply can't support that, especially if we continue to give uh, welfare to all of them. And demographically, politically speaking, of course, I mean, the, one of the reasons that the Democrats favor this, and not only the Democrats, but really 
uh, the communists or those who are of the socialist persuasion is that mass migration is a tool for demographic change. And they know that they want to bring in demographics into this country, voting blocks that are, frankly speaking, uh, more amenable to big government, more amenable to socialism, to government you know, handouts and all this kind of thing. Uh, they're trying to over, they're trying to, um, uh, what's the word, water down the constitutional limited government voting block or, or political culture in the United States. And so as a result, you know, not only do we need to hold the line against any atmosphere, but we put, be more proactive in uh, cutting off the incentives to all this mass migration, of course, finishing off the border wall and better securing the border is just common sense. Um, but also, for example, ensuring at the federal level that there isn't any money that's being given in programs and welfare to illegal aliens. It's just forming a magnet, ending the practice of birthright citizenship, practices like uh, chain migration, the visa lottery, H-1B visas that, again, incentivize all this and, uh, and, and also incentivize companies giving jobs to otherwise go to Americans, especially in the situation here uh, recently when we're in a tough economic spot, really that itself was caused by government because of blocking people's right to work due to the so-called pandemic. Um, but anyway... And uh, yeah, and also sanctuary cities and sanctuary jurisdictions like sanctuary states. You know, these people who are enabling, frankly, the invasion of this country need to be held more responsible for what they're doing. And I would like to see uh, stronger legislation that actually puts felony or criminal penalties for uh, the politicians in these jurisdictions who enact sanctuary legislation or sanctuary policies. That's the migration issue. Uh, you know, then we also have the Second Amendment, and uh, you know, it's under it's also right now, and it really goes hand in hand again. You know, the issues that I'm honing in on, again, there's so many important issues facing our country constitutionally, but look at the ones that the communists are most attacking, the ones that they know they most have to get through if they want their agenda for total government to become a reality. And the Second Amendment is one of them. They understand that one of the greatest impediments between them. And their plan is an armed citizenry. That's why anywhere that they've come into power, anywhere in the world, they've always gone after the people's right to keep in their bare arms. And that's enshrined in our constitution. But, you know, it's not, it's not me what they're doing right now. Of course, Biden put out his gun control agenda. Democrats would like to, um, you know, ban everything under the sun that they can. They're always targeting so-called assault rifles, assault weapons. We need to hold the line and make sure that all these weapons, all these arms continue to be protected and, and people are able to purchase them as they want. But we also need to be pro more proactive and not just in shooting down stuff like red flag laws and shooting down things like gun registries and confiscations, but being proactive also in taking back our God-given rights. Right now, on the books, at the federal level, at the state level, uh, there's so many things that are being implemented and we just go along with it. And I'll give you an example. You know, um, concealed carry permits. And I've got my concealed carry. Um, and, you know, a lot of people talk about concealed carry reciprocity, and that's fine. I support that. But at the end of the day, even uh, the notion of concealed carry is unconstitutional. The, con the Second Amendment says shall not be infringed, period. And so, in my view, the Constitution is my, is yours, is anybody's permit 
to keep and to bear arms, bear it in whatsoever way we want, openly, concealed, or otherwise. And so all these all these government restrictions at the federal, at the state level and local level, you know, it's telling you how you can carry, what kind of weapons you can buy, uh, how much ammunition you can own, you know, how many days you have to, all this kind of stuff uh, is unconstitutional. And the Second Amendment, in my judgment, is not even a state's rights issue because it's very clear that shall not be infringed. That applies everywhere in the union. So I would seek legislation at the federal level that just completely nullify all these limitations on people's right to bear arms so we can truly leave the Second Amendment as it was intended by the founding fathers unfettered. Yeah, I and agree then, with you there. Just to, not to interrupt you, but that's probably yeah. uh, the opinion that I have that, that people consider the most extreme. I, I, I literally think that there should be no laws in terms of who can own what sort of firearm if it exists and I have the... Uh, you know, I have the financial means to own it. I should be able to own it. And and I think it, you know, an armed society is a polite society uh, is a very wise phrase that I've always heard. Now, I do think that, you know, I don't think the government should require a regulator, but I do think people should, you know, be trained on what they own, right? If you, I think you're pretty Absolutely. reckless and dangerous if you don't train on, on the firearms that you own and the other sort of weaponry that you own. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, people want to pussyfoot around the the – the reason for the Second Amendment, this, the reason the Second Amendment exists is so that people have the means to overthrow the government should the government become tyrannical, right? So all these, you know, you hear a lot of straw man arguments about, well, you know, back in the days that the Constitution was written, they didn't have the same weaponry we had now. Doesn't matter because the the clear intent, like with, for, for anybody with a brain that has read about the <laughs> revolutionary history of, uh, you know, how America came to be, you can see that the Second Amendment was is a threat to the people who are in power in government saying, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you know, people will take, you know, violent means if necessary to uh, hold you accountable or get you out and put someone in who will do what they're supposed to do. Uh, so it's good to hear, you know, it's good to hear other people saying, like, listen, man, like, shall not be infringed means to, it means exactly what it says. It doesn't mean <laughs> there, there's no caveats. There's no, uh, you know, there's not an appendix to the Constitution that says, you know, shall not be infringed unless, you know, X, Y, and Z happen. It's just straight up shall not be infringed. Absolutely. No, you're exactly right. And, uh, you know, the problem with, with gun control is, as, as, the, as the famous phrase goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So even a lot of these things that sound innocuous, like uh, background checks, for example, you know, they say, oh, it's just to keep people who are felons from owning guns. But the problem is what happens when, when the government becomes tyrannical, it starts deciding that even people who just have a different point of view are felons. You know, yep. it, it, they, they use that designation, and now all of a sudden we're finding ourselves deprived of being owned a firearm because we've been politically targeted. And that's exactly the direction they're going, you know, with all these things that they're doing now, especially with when they talk about hate crimes, for example, you know, that's hate crimes. They want to continually redefine hate crimes to make them more encompassing. All of a sudden, thought crimes or speech crimes become hate crimes, right. and then they'll make them felonious. And so now all of a sudden, just because you're guilty of wrong thing or wrong speech, you're no longer able to own a firearm. Yeah, that's what's so, happening. Yeah. And people don't realize in Canada and in the UK, what you say online and what you say in person, literally, if someone feels that it was hateful towards them, 
Um, that is the actual litmus test for some of these laws. I'm, I am offended by what you said, and I feel like what you're saying was hateful. Therefore, I reported you to the police. You can go to jail for, for months or even years for that sort of stuff. And, I, and I've tried to warn people of this, too. You know, I, I don't necessarily consider myself... Uh, you know, I, I try to not label myself politically to anything. I, I believe that at my core, I want to do what is good and right, right? If, if a Democrat has an idea that I truly believe is good and right, I'd support it. If it comes from a Republican, I don't care where it comes from or what sort of political thought it comes from. Um, but, you know, if you look at the UK and you look at Canada specifically, they are about 10, 15 years ahead of us in terms of the influence of progressive politics and progressive thought, Right specifically on laws and the way society works. And if you look in Canada right now, they have locked down their society in a way uh, that is, you know, something that we would never have dreamed would happen in Canada. Uh, you know, people are being put in jail simply for going outside and not wearing a mask. Like, there, there's all sorts of wild things happening in Canada. And if you say anything hateful about the government, they bring the full force of the government against you, and they find some reason to end up, you know, bringing charges and fines and all sorts of stuff against you. And in the UK, the UK is actually a little bit ahead of Canada in terms of, progressivism right um in the uk you can you will literally go to jail there was a man who uh and i forget the whole story i'll have to find it and put it in the show notes but there was a man who dressed up his dog like adolf hitler it was some little chihuahua or something he dressed it up like adolf hitler and he did this stupid instagram post where the dog was supposedly giving the nazi salute which don't get me wrong he's ignorant is is that a thing i would do no is it an actual crime also no right like but he because of the laws in the uk was convicted of hate speech for for propagating hate speech online and he was put in jail for like a year i think it was a year i don't know the exact amount of time but it was a significant amount of time long enough that he lost his job he lost where he lived he lost most of his possessions um because it was just because of a joke albeit a stupid joke that he made online and what i'm telling people is is your local elections have consequences and the people that you're voting for uh and the the law the laws that you are allowing politicians to put on the books are <clears throat> slowly pushing the United States towards that same sort of totalitarian thought. Um, and, and it's, it's cool to hear you talking about that. You see that also, uh, you and I probably, you know, just like any politician I talk to, you and I probably aren't going to agree on every issue that's out there or how to address that issue. But, it, but I, I agree with the, the sentiment that we, we need to be very aware of the influence of, uh, progressivism and, and all this woke culture and the cancel culture, which this is probably a topic for another episode, but you know, which all it is is thinly veiled communism. It's thinly veiled Marxist thought. This, this is all of this stuff is a uh, slow burning Marxist communist revolution that wants to push the American mm -hmm. political and economic system towards that failed ideology. Uh, and there's people out there that unironically believe that communism is a net benefit and would be a good thing to implement here. And, and, you know, hopefully people will really start to really scrutinize the folks that they're putting in office and understand what the, what the end game is on some of this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right about that a bit. It is, it is communism at the end of the day, you know, this social justice, as they call it, uh, political correctness is nothing more than a cultural Marxism. And, and I'm not, the biggest academic on the subject, but there are some people who've written great stuff about it, like uh, Willie Messlin talking about exposing the Frankfurt School and a lot of these other uh, socialist movements who basically took the principles of Karl Marx, uh, took it from its economic principles and readjusted it for societal or, or cultural issues 
and repackaged it. Uh, and that's what's being sold, sold here in the United States now under the guise of social justice, yep. but really with the same end, but establishing communist, communist totalitarianism. And it's sad to see, like you said, that so many people think it's a net benefit, despite the fact that communism has a death toll of millions, one of the most bloody and bloodthirsty ideologies in all human history. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's up there for sure. It, it's the worst idea to come from the 20th century, I think you could say, like out of a whole crop of, you know, god-awful ideas that, that originated there. Um, you know, you could make a larger argument that overpowered government, overly large government, is, is the biggest threat to humanity since the dawn of time, right? When a government becomes so large that it can... Uh, you know, trample people's rights and kill people and, and, and do all sorts of awful things, whether it's communism or otherwise, like, you know, that I think communism also, the arguments against communism are also arguments against large government. Like government should be small and limited and, and very narrowly defined in the scope of what it can do, should do, is able to do. Um, you know, and I think we've, we've lost that battle a long time ago. I was telling somebody the other day, like the United States government could disappear people if it wanted to. Like it could literally show up at my house one day. It could send whatever, you know, alphabet regiment, uh, you know, ATF, whatever, a ATF, FBI, CIA, and they could make me disappear. They could literally wipe me off the face of the planet. There might be a handful of people like my wife and my, my, you know, immediate family that would know that I was gone, but by and large, like they could erase me from history. Um, and that I think is the problem. That's the real problem. You know, we have to make the government smaller and less powerful so that, you know, whatever it does doesn't have such overarching impact that it that it is harmful to, to many, many people. Absolutely. And that's that's uh you know, we we're talking about things to do once once elected, and that's one of the top ones, is it's about time we got serious about actually cutting down on this this Leviathan of government that we have now. It's uh us this surveillance state, this police state. You know, and a lot of it's been created due to both political parties. I mean, think back to the Patriot Act, uh, signed a lot by a Republican president, and one of the top ones that we just need a complete repeal of. But all these other agencies as well, these agencies, they need to be defanged immediately. A lot of them just completely shut down. ATF, for example. I mean, <laughs> just flat out one of the most unconstitutional things out there, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, three things government has no role whatsoever getting involved in. And so... Uh, you know, we need to start cracking down on this government and it, uh, chipping away, well, not chipping away, taking a sledgehammer, really, to the power it has to surveil Americans, to uh, um, search and, and seizure, all these things that are just flat-out banned in the Constitution yep. as uh, uh, securing our God-given rights, and they're just completely being trampled on right now, completely. And so it seems every, every generation of politicians who get into Congress only it further expands and expands the power of government uh, with every passing session. So it's about time that we have people who get in there who go against that tide and rather than expanding and growing are willing to actually make smaller and to reduce drastically. And it has to be done drastically because frankly, like you said, we're only a few years down the line from getting to where places like the UK and Canada are once we get that point, I'm telling you, that's going to be a really devastating time for America. We don't want to get there. I mean, but at the, end of the, at the end of the day, like you said, we're already pretty far along. You're right that the government could come and it could 
uh, murder any one of us that it wanted to without leaving so much as, as a trace or anybody to to mourn us except our immediate families. So it is, I mean, that we really are in many ways already living under what people like George Orwell in 1984 foresaw. It's A lot of it is already here, yep. and it's, it's scary to think about. And uh, going up against it because of that, you know, it's no small thing. Obviously, it's, it, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of opposition within there. But at the end of the day, it's, it's what we have to do. It's the response. It's what we owe at least to the future generations, not only our own kids and grandkids, but the people who we haven't met yet. We have, in my view, a solemn obligation to ensure the blessings of liberty that we have. You know, it's, it's our obligation to try to do something by anything we can, you know, no matter what it might cost us, no matter how difficult it's see, even if we don't win every battle, we have to do what we can. And that's what I'm going to do once I'm in there. That's awesome, man. So if people want to find out more about you and your run for Senate, where can they go to get more details on you? Absolutely. I encourage everybody to visit LuisMiguelForSenate.com. That's LuisMiguelForSenate.com. You can also check me out on pretty much all the social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Parler, Gab, Instagram, Telegram, uh, pretty much all with the handle at Luis Miguel US. And you can also uh, visit The New American at thenewamerican.com. And I have articles up there most days, so you can continue to see my, my views and my exposés on many of the things happening right now in America. Awesome, man. Yeah, I'll put all of those links um, to your, your site and as many of your social media as I can find uh, in the show notes. So if you're listening right now and you didn't catch that from Luis, uh, just go to the show notes of this episode and you will find it there. Uh, Luis, I just want to say, you know, thanks again for coming on, man. This has been a pleasure, um, you know, and I wish you, uh, you know, the best of luck in your run. And when we get closer to the actual primaries, I'd love to have you on again. Thank you. The pleasure's been all mine. I appreciate you.